The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. We're very excited to introduce our brand new set here at the WCB studio. Very excited for all of our viewers to join us tonight. My name is Thomas Nagley. I'm here with Father William Jenkins. He is the traditional uh, Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. And he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Welcome to our brand new set. Well, thank you, Tom. It's nice to be here. Yes, yeah. Quite a transformation here. Yes, right? a little bit. Well, I have to commend the crew. They did a great job. Right? We have the, uh, all kinds of artistic talent behind this. So I hope uh, our viewers will approve and perhaps even offer some help with suggestions, too. Yeah, we would welcome that. So, mm. very good. Well, thank you, Father. It's great, uh, great to be back again. It's been uh, some time since I've been able to join you on the show. So thank you, uh, thank you for uh, carrying on. We're um, we have a lot to talk about tonight. There's a lot, uh, a lot going on, but we have a lot of great um, viewer questions. We um, have spent some time away from the email inbox, so we'd really like to uh, get back to some of our, our viewer questions. And uh, one of the um, first ones we've actually had had several viewers ask about this and i thought it might be be very uh beneficial to get this uh um get a recording of this on, on video but father could you perhaps um explain what exactly are the requirements uh for someone wishing to receive holy communion at a society of saint pius v chapel we've had uh we've had several viewers ask about this whether or not uh, someone who attends the Novus Ordo, if they would be welcome to receive holy communion at any time uh from an sspv priest um, some others have asked, what about the question of baptism of desire? Is it necessary that uh, someone believes in baptism of desire before they are to be admitted to Holy Communion? Um, any other uh, requirements, Father? Any, anything else you'd like to say on, on that matter of uh, Holy Communion? Well, Tom, uh, of course, the Church itself requires that a person be validly baptized. And they have to be baptized into the Catholic Church, right? So they not only have to be baptized, but they have to be uh, practicing the faith. You know, there are those who uh, perhaps have been away from the faith, they've uh, not made their Easter duty or whatever reason, that they, they lapsed into a situation of being non-practicing Catholics, right? Uh, and so they have to be actual practicing Catholics. They're baptized, and they have to be in a state of grace, okay? And that is that they have to have confessed and been absolved of all mortal sins known to them, um, uh, so, you know, obviously those aren't baptized or excluded from receiving any sacrament. Um, and, um, those who are in the state of mortal sin are forbidden to receive any sacrament of the living, 
okay, which would include the Blessed Sacrament, of course. Um, but they also have to have the true Catholic faith and be practicing the faith. Um, that's why when we say that uh, they have to be attending only the traditional Mass, the traditional Roman Rite of Mass, or the a traditional Eastern Rite of Mass, as long as a traditional Rite of Mass offered by a real traditional priest, um, they should not come to receive Holy Communion from any of our Society of St. Pius V priests. The reason being is because we look upon the new Mass as being essentially a different religion. <clears throat> uh, you know, Pope Pius X warned us against modernism. In 1907, the uh, encyclical Pascendi de and he actually called it the synthesis of all heresies. And what came out of Vatican II was modernism. What followed upon Vatican II in terms of the new Mass, the two sacraments, it, it's actually the religion of modernism. It's putting the modernist belief, or well, I would call it, 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 it's hard to call modernism a, a system of belief. It's really a system of unbelief <laughs> because they start by completely distorting and destroying the very concept of faith itself. St. Pius X made that point in Pascendi. And so if you put into practice the synthesis of all heresies in a religion, and you have a new mass devised for it and new sacraments devised for it, it would be antithetical to be practicing that and practicing the traditional Catholic faith at the same time. How can you go in for the synthesis of all heresies on the one hand and claim to be an adherent of the traditional Catholic faith on the other hand? It doesn't make any sense. So, um, there are a lot of people who don't understand that, and there probably, well, there, there must be people who are practicing the Novus Ordo, who, the New Order Mass and Sacraments, who don't really yet understand, hopefully they will, come to understand how completely uh, opposed the New Mass and Sacraments are to the traditional Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, these, uh, the New Mass and the New Sacraments were meant to replace entirely the traditional Mass, not to coexist with the traditional Mass, but meant to replace entirely the traditional Catholic sacraments, not to coexist with them, <coughs> because they are essentially the polar opposite of the traditional Catholic religion, as modernism is the polar opposite of the traditional Catholic faith. Um, it is our hope that if we stand firm on this and insist that this is the case, that this is the truth, that people will come to realize that. People who do not now understand it will come to realize that it is a clear-cut choice between modernism and its religion of the new order, or traditional Catholicism, Catholic doctrine, traditional Catholic faith, and practicing it in the traditional mass and traditional sacraments. Mm -hmm. The problem we have, though, is that there, there are traditional Catholic priests, traditional Catholic laymen, who want to blur the line between the two and compromise. They want to try to produce some sort of a, a tertium quid between the traditional mass and the new mass, between the, the modern, modernism of the new order and the traditional Catholic faith. They want to find some sort of middle way, which is a blend of the two, which is pr probably the worst of all, um, because it, uh, it pretends uh, actually to justify what is a bald-faced lie, mm -hmm. and that is that these two things are compatible, modernism and Catholicism, and they are not. And so uh, the Society of St. Pius V basically is sending the message, don't compromise. You cannot compromise. There can be no compromise between modernism and Catholicism, real Catholicism. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And um, so that that has to do with the question of going to the new mass, right? Mm -hmm. So one has to make a decision. You know, does the new mass express my faith, or does it not? If it does not express my faith, because I have the traditional Catholic faith. If the new mass does not say that it is the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary, which it does not say, but the traditional mass is the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary, there is an essential difference between difference between these two services. One is at best Protestant, and the other is fully Catholic. And so uh, I couldn't go to a new mass any more than I could go to a Lutheran service. Uh, the fact that there are Lutheran clergymen who find no problem with their religion and their belief saying the new mass, you know, is part of, because it, there's nothing in there that, that is contrary to what a Lutheran would believe. Yeah. Um, so that's the point we're making, okay? The new mass is not Catholic, was never intended to be Catholic. It was to, intended to replace the Catholic mass. And so we can't be doing both, uh, honestly. As far as the, um, the teaching of uh, baptism of desire and baptism of blood, Again, this, this is sort of uh, Catholic teaching. It is. It's part of Catholic doctrine. Uh, there is such a thing as baptism of blood, and there is such a thing as baptism of desire. Now, there are people who reject both of these things because um, they have a wrong idea, a wrong understanding of them. Unfortunately, the wrong understanding of these two, baptism of desire and baptism of blood, have been... Uh, basically uh, foisted on, on the church by liberals. The, the liberals in the church have taken these two uh, concepts and so completely distorted them that people say, well, that's not the Catholic faith. And, of course, the distortion of the doctrine is not the Catholic faith. But for them to turn around and say, then, there is no such thing as baptism of desire or baptism of blood is, is completely wrong. Yeah. Um, because the church does teach. In fact, with regard to baptism of blood, even St. Augustine in, uh, the, uh, in the, the, the City of God, I mean, he, he talks about this, and I think it's chapter 13, where he talks about martyrs dying who are not baptized. And he makes a strong point of that. He, uh, I guess there were those who were objecting, even in his time, uh, saying what they, they died without the waters of baptism, so they're lost. St. Augustine said, well, this is not the teaching of the church. He said, look, if the church had been teaching that without the water of baptism, no matter what you do, even dying for Christ uh, will not save you, then people would not have given their lives as martyrs for Christ. They would have denied Christ, lived long enough to be baptized, and then, okay, then they'd be good to go. Yeah. But that's not what happened. He said there were martyrs who actually died without the waters of baptism. And he said that explicitly. They died without the waters of baptism. They died knowing that their faith, their hope, and their love for our Lord would avail them unto salvation. And, uh, of course, this involves a perfect love for our Lord and a, uh, a repentance, a perfect repentance for sin. Okay. And the teaching of the baptism of desire also is, is similar to that, uh, insofar as the, the Catechism of the Council of Trent, uh, which was published under Pope Pius V in 1566, says explicitly that the Church is, is not, uh, does not expedite the baptism of adult converts, but wants them first to practice, study the faith, and 
show that they are, you know, sincere in their belief. Uh, and the church doesn't uh, feel the urgency to baptize them because, and this is what it says, that those who would die without the waters of baptism, they would find that, and the church believes that their desire for the sacrament and their repentance for their sins will avail them, not would, but will avail them of grace and justification before God, that he would justify them, that he would sanctify them, and they would be saved. This is the church's teaching. Now, there are those who very foolishly uh, insist, well, that's not, in, that's not the teaching of the church, it's just in the Catechism of the Council of Trent, the Roman Catechism under St. Pius V. Pretty brash for them to say that, just on the basis of their own ignorance, that they say, well, that doesn't count, almost. But the uh, Catechism of the Council of Trent is just expressing what the Council itself decreed dogmatically uh, with regard to receiving the salutary waters of baptism or at least having the desire for them, saltum in voto, at least having the desire for them. So again, there you have baptism of desire explicitly spoken of in the Council of Trent itself. And again, there are those who are just so determined not to yield because it's not really a matter for them of what's right, it's a matter of who's right. And they've got a stake in this. So they will squirm and turn and twist and twist not only themselves, but their but words, even the words of Christ and the words of councils to serve their purposes. Mm. But uh, the fact is the church has explicitly acknowledged that there is such a thing as baptism of, of blood, rightly understood, and baptism of desire, rightly understood. So if someone does not accept those two doctrines of, of, the, of the church, they should not come to receive Holy Communion from us. Um, uh, basically, they kind of have the approach of modernists, in, in a sense, in the way of Protestants, in the way they interpret things. Mm -hmm. um, so, if somebody is not dressed appropriately, obviously, um, um, uh, if, if one is dressed in a very uh, slovenly way, and uh, I'd say purposely so, they shouldn't come to receive. I mean, obviously, if a, if a man were to walk into the aisle in a baseball cap, plop down at the community rail, um, and expect you to give them Holy Communion, uh, people would be scandalized. Um, they'd be scandalized by that man walking up the aisle in, in Bermuda shorts and a, a baseball cap, and perhaps a University of Budweiser t-shirt on, and whatever. They'd be scandalized to see someone like that kneeling at the community rail. But they'd be ten times as scandalized to see a priest give him Holy Communion that way. And so... Um, you know, there, there are certain provisions in canon law uh, that would exclude one from Holy Communion. And they're the most serious of all, uh, like schism and heresy and so on. But it has always been the case in the church, too, that the church's moral theologians have taught that if someone comes to receive Holy Communion and they are not even dressed properly to receive that it would be scandalous for them to receive, be scandalous for the priest to give them Holy Communion. So there, again, there are certain conditions uh, in which if someone were to come to Mass at a back of the deception, let's say, and, and, you know, from the Novus Ordo, somebody might come in uh, out of curiosity. Somebody might be a visitor in town, visiting relatives down the block, and they say, oh, there's a Catholic church. I think I'll drop in there for Sunday liturgy or whatever. <laughs> And they come in wearing flip-flops and, uh, and Bermuda shorts and who knows what else. 
then obviously they should not approach the community rail, and the usher should let them know you should not approach. Right? Mm. Now that's not making a judgment that they're in the state of mortal sin, but there's an objective reality to the fact that uh, there are certain um, there's a certain apparel that clearly does not show respect yeah. to um, our Lord's presence in the church, and you know, uh, apart from the internal disposition to the soul and the internal forum, the state of the conscience, um, there had to be certain external uh, decora that are met as well. Mm -hmm. Father, yeah. could you uh, perhaps contrast your traditional Catholic understanding of this matter with the more modernist understanding, which uh, I think even in, in the new, their new code of canon law, they, they talk about the, uh, the Holy Eucharist being, being like a, a healing sacrament or something. So just for the, for the sake of argument, um, I mean, what if, uh, you know, you mentioned these, uh, if I understand you correctly, you say that it is conceivable there, there could be, um, in, within the Nova Sordo, uh, persons who have the traditional Catholic faith, but maybe they're not practicing it uh, within mm. the confines of the Nova Sordo, but yet they have the mm. traditional Catholic faith. Well, And we know for a fact there are, because often they find their way back to the traditional Catholic Mass. Mm. Yeah. And they, they realize as soon as they, you know, witness the traditional Catholic Mass, they say, this is, this is what I believe. And I'm here because I knew there was something wrong in the Novus Ordo. So it's a miracle of grace, but there are people who have been raised in the Novus Ordo but, who haven't but, really embraced uh, the faith, the anti-faith behind it. And they do have the traditional Catholic faith. If, if that's the case, and uh, if it's also the case that, that the, the Blessed Sacrament is, is indeed a uh, medicinal, a healing sacrament, then um, wouldn't uh, it... It does. One could one could see how it could seem a bit uh, cruel, perhaps. Some have have used that term uh, to refuse Holy Communion to these traditional Catholics. Perhaps this medicinal healing sacrament is exactly what they need to have the strength to leave the Nova Sordo. Um, maybe to to strengthen their faith, to firmly believe and accept all of the doctrines of the faith. So, and I, and I think the Nova Sordo even even extends that to non-Catholics. They say, well, since this is a healing, a medicinal sacrament, you know, we need to give this even to non-Catholics. Um, and that's an argument that we should use to that the fact that they give the Eucharist or what they call it yeah. to the non-Catholics yeah. should set the pace for us that we should give them communion too. Well, <laughs> well, what about what about is is it true that the that the blessed sacrament is it a, is it a healing is it a medicinal sacrament is that true? Well, certainly, but it uh, does require that a person be spiritually alive. Uh, you know, it's a sacrament of the living. Mm. And so uh, someone has to be in the state of grace to receive it, period. They, yeah. That's what the church has always taught. And, um, you know, you don't give medicine to a corpse. Yeah. Uh, um, they need to have the sacrament of the, uh, of the dead, penance, <clears throat> baptism, in order to justify them of sin before they can worthily receive Holy Communion. See, Francis is purveying this, this false idea <clears throat> that the Holy Eucharist is actually medicine for the sake, so people who are in sin are the ones who really need it, and you need to give it to them. Uh, open adulterers and so on, uh, they're, the, they're the ones that you should be first in line to receive the Eucharist, as far as Francis is concerned, you know. But uh, the fact that it is our Lord himself personally present there, and um, it is a sacrilege to receive him while you're in the state of mortal sin. So if, if one is motivated by a love for our Lord, um, in receiving him in Holy Communion, then it would make perfect sense that that love for our Lord would motivate them to repent and to apologize. I mean, when you've offended someone gravely, 
um, there, there is something required of you, and that is that you go to them and you apologize to them. And our Lord Himself has set up that uh, He's given the church the authority to forgive, and He's gave that authority through, through the apostles, right? And they, through the uh, ordination of priests and bishops throughout the centuries, and uh, the sacrament of confession. Our Lord gave us uh, the sacrament of penance, actually, is what a confession is the, one of the five main parts when we actually tell our sins. Um, but um, the sacrament of penance itself is meant to relieve of our sins by absolving us, right? And it is Christ himself who absolves us through the priest. So, uh, but what it is is actually an apology. It is a formal apology to God for the sins we've committed. And it is what he himself has established. Um, in giving his apostles the power to forgive sins, as he told them the very night of his resurrection, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. Christ himself set that as the standard operating procedure of the church and, and Catholics in order to seek forgiveness, to make that apology, and to receive that absolution. And uh, for those who love our Lord, that's, that has to precede any attempt to receive him unworthily. Um, if you gravely offend somebody, uh, you don't just stomp into his house, slam the door, go to the refrigerator, start chowing down, and uh, making yourself at home. Uh, if it's God you offended, you certainly don't presume that. That's that same arrogant presumption that led a person to sin in the first place. And it just compounds the gravity of the sin, that, uh, that complete lack of respect for God. So uh, we have to restore um, that proper relationship that we have with God by apologizing, being absolved of sin before we can approach Him worthily in Holy Communion. Otherwise, if we approach Him unworthily, it just adds to the sinfulness that's already there. And probably, actually, the, the, one that might have considered, committed a, a dozen mortal sins. But in approaching our Lord in Holy Communion, uh, with those sins on one's soul, unforgiven, unabsolved, unconfessed, um, one adds to that actually a much worse sin, and that is the sin of sacrilege and a complete uh, disregard for the holiness of Christ. Yeah. Wow. I don't know if that answers your question. No, yeah, that's, that's good. Wow. <clears throat> Very good. Well, uh, perhaps we can uh, move on then. There's another topic. Um, I was really interested to uh, hear your response to this. Father, one of our, our viewers asked if you could give some advice um, to, uh, to someone who is uh, maybe perhaps a little bit discouraged uh, in, in reading uh, reading about the church's doctrine on the fewness of the saved. Maybe they've um, listened to, to different sermons about this, just exactly how hard it is to save your soul, how few save their soul. Um, what would you, what kind of advice, encouragement would you offer someone who might be a little bit discouraged by that? Well, I, I guess I'd ask them if their discouragement uh, arises from the fact that they fear they won't be numbered among the few. And... Um, you know, for those who are discouraged by the numbers, um, when we're talking about a greater number, a lesser number, and uh, they might be thinking of the odds, you know, what are the odds of my being saved, you know? 
If uh, Sophie or Sabe knew the only one in ten, maybe only one in a hundred, what is the likelihood of my being that one in a hundred was yeah. saved? Well, they're making a big mistake in even thinking of it that way because that's not how it is at all. It is something entirely within the will of God that we be saved. Uh, God will give us the grace to be saved, and what we are called upon to do is re cooperate with those graces. The very fact that a person acknowledges the fact that there are few people saved of the totality of humanity um, already puts that individual in, a, in, in the ranks of a very select group of people. The very fact that they recognize that and the very fact that they care already, in a sense, distinguishes them. <clears throat> the fact is they know what is necessary to be saved. They have uh, faith in God who wa they know wants them to be saved. And um, they, they just have to make uh, you know, that act of confidence in God's mercy and God's love for them. I mean, God does not uh, condemn people based upon their place in line. Or, you know, he doesn't go, go, you know, go up to into groups of people and say, I'm going to pick three of you to be saved, the rest of you are going to go to hell. Uh, rather, it is the individuals themselves, because of their cooperation with grace, who make that choice. And um, so uh, I'd say to someone who is concerned about the fewness of, of, the, of the, you know, those who are saved, and fear that they will not be numbered among those few, I would say, well, it, it is really quite within your power to determine whether you will be among those few or not. And, uh, I mean, if you are among the few who are faithful to God, if you are among the few who keep the commandments and love God enough, if not perfectly, at least, most of all, at least that much to be faithful. So whenever you have a choice to make, you will choose not to sin, but to be faithful to God. Uh, you've already made the choice to live your life in the state of sanctifying grace, therefore. And uh, that already places you among the few. So um, I would tell them that they, they need to stop looking at this as a numbers game, as human beings do, and look at it as a matter of, of uh, divine love and love for God. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that they have faith, that the supernatural virtue of faith, and the supernatural virtue of hope, and the supernatural virtue of charity, love for God. That that is what God. That is what God looks for. That is that is what is necessary to be saved. Mm -hmm. Father, is it correct to say that it is uh, that it is very hard to save one's soul? I mean, it seems that that that's the case on the surface. We have the uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil warring against us, and uh, the sacred scriptures talk about spiritual warfare, um, but. Then again, there are, there's a very popular, uh, very famous traditional Catholic book titled An, An Easy Way to Become a Saint. So um, is, it, uh, is it correct to say that it's very hard to save our souls, Father? Or is it very easy? What's the correct Catholic understanding of that? Well, as, as I mentioned, having the virtues of faith, hope, and charity, as St. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's only 13 verses, and yet it contains practically the entire moral teaching of the Catholic Church and what is necessary to save your soul. St. Paul Spells it out, First Corinthians chapter 13, it's right there. Put it into practice, you'll save your soul. <laughs> is that simple? Yes, it's about as simple as you can get. It's not complicated, it's not rocket science. 
you don't need to solve uh, quadratic equations or anything like that. Um, it's that's precisely why we might say it's it's hard because it is so simple. There's no fine print. Uh, it is it is what it is. You know, if you live this, if you do this, <clears throat> if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I was I become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal, right? And if I should have prophecy and all faith and all knowledge and uh, and well, he says all faith so that I can remove mountains and not charity. I'm nothing in the eyes of God. That's worth nothing. And even all the good works, if I should distribute all my goods to feed the poor and, and um, deliver my body to be burned for martyrdom. And if it's not a charity, a love for God, it profits me nothing. That's how St. Paul begins 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Mm -hmm. And he goes on and explains then what charity is and what charity does. He ends by saying, now there remain these three, faith, hope, and charity, these, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. That's the one thing that we will take with us into heaven and which we will hold in heaven forever, that love for God. So um, the simplicity of this is, um, is beautiful, but it also comes down to either you love God or you don't. And you might say, well, that makes it difficult, doesn't it? And you might say, well, it does for us because we are very simple creatures, right? Mm -hmm. Our pride has gotten the better of us, and uh, it's difficult for us to love. Um, and to, to love God, um, we're not required to love God perfectly in this life in order to be saved. We are required to have perfect love for God to enter heaven, the saints. But to be saved, our Lord said, we are required to keep the commandments. It simply means that whenever we're tempted between this created good, whatever it is, on the one hand, or being faithful to God, on the other hand, we will always love God most. Not God perfectly, but more than anything else, we will love God. And so we will always choose to be faithful to God. And we will, if, if we did that, we would never commit mortal sin. We would always be in the state of grace. It really comes down to that. It's that simple. The hard part is loving God that much. Loving God enough to place Him first and not put an idol in His place in our lives. Whatever it might be, impurity, uh, money, power, <laughs> comforts, whatever it might be. Um, so in a sense, no, it's, it's not hard. In another sense, it is very hard. Um, it's not hard in terms of, uh, figuring out what we have to do. Yeah. It's hard doing it. St. Paul pretty well boiled it down to the essentials in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Read that and then tell me, does this sound hard to you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Father, talking about the, uh, the virtue of charity and love of God that leads nicely to our next question. Uh, one of our viewers asked how they can practice devotion to the Sacred Heart when they are unable to attend Mass or even receive the sacraments. Well, actually, that's a good question, but I'd say devotion to the Sacred Heart is even more necessary when you're isolated like that, you know. Um, but uh, the mindfulness of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, of course, is... Uh, 
uh, a key to the sacred scriptures. You know, the, the, we find the uh, the heart of our Lord being a focal point of Saint John the Apostle, uh, when he uh, stands at the foot of the cross and sees the piercing of the heart of Jesus and the opening of the heart of Jesus and the blood and water uh, pouring out of the heart of Jesus. He he uh, he focuses on that sacred heart. Okay, and um, Later on, St. John revealed to St. Gertrude that he had actually heard the heart of Jesus beating within his breast there at the Last Supper. And um, we see that the Sacred Heart of Jesus is not only a symbol of divine love, okay? it is actually, as we say in the Litany of the Sacred Heart, uh, a material thing. It is a material heart. It is actual muscle, human muscle, with human DNA, <laughs> uh, to do a very human thing, <coughs> to circulate blood and keep uh, the Son of God made man alive as man, until he would render his life for us on the cross. <clears throat> so it sustained that life that he took for the sake of, as he's laying down his life for us. Uh, so the Sacred Heart is actually a material object, as material as your heart or mine. And yet, that heart of Jesus is united to the uh, divine person of God's own Son. The eternal Son of God is the person who actually became incarnate, and it is that is his heart. So we say it is substantially united to the divine, the Word of God, Son of God made man. And that... Um, that makes all the difference for us because it really is the heart of a divine person. It is the heart of God. Um, so we honor it as such. We honor it as the heart of God. And um, we need to uh, cultivate a devotion to the Sacred Heart. Um, and we can do that in, in a number of ways. Um, praying the litany of the Sacred Heart of Jesus is very important. One could do that every single day. Uh, I recommend praying every day the Litany of the Sacred Heart, uh, the Litany of the Blessed Mother, Litany of St. Joseph, um, or one could uh, actually have the Litany of the Holy Name of Jesus and the Blessed Mother and St. Joseph, those three litanies, and out of the Holy Family. But in any case, I'd, I'd recommend for someone who uh, does not have access, especially, especially for one, who does not have access to the traditional Mass on a regular basis, and our Lord and Holy Communion, to pray the Litany to the Sacred Heart every single day, to enthrone the image of the Sacred Heart in the home, uh, if they can have a priest come and bless the image, and um, uh, in their home that's fine, if they can't, um, they can at least um, either take the image to a traditional priest, or send it to him to be blessed, and have it sent back to them. Because the actual act of enthronement of the Sacred Heart consists of the person who is the head of the household in the home taking it and placing the blessed image in its place of honor in the home. That is the enthronement. <coughs> so the actual enthronement is done by the lay man or lay woman who is the, let's say, head of the household. You know? uh, usually the dad is the one who will, who will do that. right? And it's, it's his way of saying we are enthroning Jesus Christ, not as only a guest in our home, he is the Lord of our home. 
And um, so, as I say, even if somebody's so isolated, they don't have access to the traditional master, even seeing a traditional priest, you know, very often, perhaps not even, you know, once every few months, um, they could still actually obtain an image of the Sacred Heart, send it, or pick it out, have it sent to the priest, ask him to bless it, send it to them, and they can actually I'm sorry, uh, enthrone that image in their home. And the priest could actually send them the booklet for the enthronement with the prayers that they could recite on their own or with the family. That all could be done, um, even at a distance. Um, one would also honor the Sacred Heart in making frequent Holy Communions, but spiritual communions. And, uh, you know, the Angelus is a beautiful uh, opportunity to do that three times a day. People who pray the Angelus at six o'clock in the morning and noon and six o'clock in the evening don't necessarily associate the Angelus with the Blessed Sacrament. But the fact is, the Angelus is about the incarnation of the Son of God and that God becoming man for us. That's what the Angelus celebrates. And it celebrates that fact three times a day. And uh, we celebrate the incarnation of the Son of God in the womb of the Blessed Mother at the, on the Annunciation, on the occasion of the Annunciation. But we also have to uh, you connect that with the fact that we have the consecration at the Mass. Well, the consecration is, is possible because the Son of God has become man, has become incarnate. And that uh, bread and wine that are brought to the altar are taken there precisely to consecrate them, to transubstantiate them to the very incarnate Son of God, who was conceived in the womb of Our Lady, born of the Virgin Mary, who died on the cross and rose and um, from the dead and is glorified in heaven right now. So the Angelus is a celebration of the incarnation of the Son of God, and we have to tie it together with the sacrifice of the Mass, and our Lord, in a sense, you might say, being born upon the altar and living upon the altar, really, glorified, showing forth his death for us. If we would uh, connect that Angelus, we pray every day, three times a day, with the mystery of the consecration at the Mass, we could use it uh, to great advantage as an opportunity to make a spiritual communion. And someone who doesn't have access to the Blessed Sacrament, someone who doesn't have access to the traditional Mass, uh, would do well to pray that Angelus every day and make that connection in his mind and his heart to the incarnation of the Son of God. You know, someone can go online, no matter how remote he is in the world, it seems he can go online and he can witness the Mass being offered multiple times a day. But even though he's witnessing the Mass being offered around the world, he doesn't have access to the Blessed Sacrament. So he really does have to cultivate the practice of making spiritual communions. And he then ties that into the idea of receiving into his own heart the heart of our Lord, the sacred heart of Jesus. Um, the sacred heart of Jesus is actually physically present in the host. Um, it... Um, it is important that a person develop that that connection, you know, as I mentioned between the Angelus and the spiritual communion, 
but also the, the connection between the spiritual communion and receiving the Sacred Heart into himself. When our Lord appeared to St. Margaret Mary in 1680, 81, 82, um, it kind of culminated in uh, an apparition where our Lord actually took her heart from her, and he took his heart and placed it in her breast, right? And so he was exchanging hearts with her, you know? And uh, that's a very beautiful representation of what happens with Holy Communion. So, um, again, uh, you know, there, there are many things a person could do. Spiritual reading about, about the Sacred Heart, certainly. The prayers to the Sacred Heart. But especially that act of spiritual communion for someone otherwise who doesn't have access to the, to the Blessed Sacrament. That's very important. Yeah. Wow, okay. That's um, very beautiful. Thank you, Father. Very helpful. Um, Father, another question, uh, if someone doesn't have access to the sacrament of penance, if you were asked, must that person have perfect contrition for all of his mortal sins in order to save his soul? A perfect contrition, if he cannot receive absolution in the sacrament, yes, he would have to have perfect contrition. Okay. Uh, what does that mean? That means he would have to have perfect love for God. Perfect sorrow for sin has to have the motivation that can come only from perfect love for God. And uh, someone who does not have access to sacramental absolution, um, sacramental absolution in, this, in the sacrament of what is called the sacrament of the dead penance, consists of our Lord supplying what is lacking in us. And what is lacking in us uh, is that perfect contrition. Um, even in, in the act of contrition, we, we pray. We say we, we're sorry because we dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell. But most of all, because my sins offend thee, my God, who art all good and worthy of all my love. That's the aspect that is a matter of a love for God and that God deserves better and that we are apologizing to him sincerely with the firm purpose of amendment going forward not to offend him again. Um, but our contrition, uh, unfortunately, is a mixture of uh, self-interest on the one hand, and there has to be at least a component of love for God for it to be a contrition at all. So we have to repent, at least to some extent, out of a love for God. It can't be pure self-interest, or I should say sheer or mere self-interest. Um, but often our contrition is a mixture of both. And when you have perfect love for God, you are profoundly sorry for your sins, even, even apart from any element of self-interest whatsoever. You're just so completely um, uh, you know, focused on the, the goodness of God, His infinite goodness and His infinite worthiness, and our infinite actually unworthiness in offending Him. Um, that... Um, that your whole motivation of repentance is because of God's goodness and a real grief that you offended this good God. Someone who would have a contrition like that would actually be willing to go to hell um, if it meant expiating his sins in the sense that he would want to, do, in a sense, compensate God for what he had done. Of course he can't, right? Uh, that isn't... Uh, 
what God wants, he doesn't want the soul to go to hell. He wants the sinner to repent and be saved. Uh, but one would recognize the justice and right, righteousness of God in condemning him to hell. Um, so the, um, the motivation in perfect contrition is a real um, um, homage, honor, worship, adoration of the goodness of God. And um, a genuine, uh, heartfelt, we say, hearty um, regret, repentance for our sins and a rejection of sin. The more we love God, the more we hate sin. We have perfect love for God. We have perfect hatred for sin, the absence of God. Um, so that would be necessary if one does not have the benefit of sacramental absolution. Yeah. One might say, well, how is that even possible? I, mean, I sinned, so obviously my love for God is already um, that low, that, that little, that I would consent to commit this sin against him, a mortal sin, perhaps multiple mortal sins. So how do I get from there, being in the state of mortal sin, which I committed because of a lack of love for God, to loving him and even loving him perfectly, so that I can repent with perfect contrition and be forgiven uh, of all of my sins? How do I get from one to the other? And the answer is divine grace. Then the next question is, well, how do I obtain that? And the answer is, humble yourself and pray for it. Ask uh, the saints to join their prayers with you, with you, pleading for you. But you, remember, the, the prayers of the saints are no replacement for your own, or substitutes for your own prayers. Right? <clears throat> so you have to turn with confidence to God um, and ask for the grace to love Him perfectly. Um, it is a prayer that God will that will please our Lord very much. If a soul turns to God with a sincere desire to, to love God perfectly, and that's what he's asking for. He says, my God, I want to love you perfectly. I want to love you with my whole heart, my whole soul, my whole mind, my whole strength. How could God not be pleased by that? That request, right? Yeah. So, God might, there's no compulsion here, extend that grace to that individual, overcome all the obstacles in his soul, give him the efficacious grace to have perfect love, and therefore perfect contrition. But maybe not. But this much is clear. That request would be very pleasing to God. So for God, then, to provide absolution, sacramental absolution for that soul, even if it doesn't raise that soul to perfect contrition, perfect love for God at that moment, God could be very well moved by that prayer to provide the sacramental absolution necessary to obtain forgiveness for that person. So it is something that, uh, well, frankly, it's something we should all be praying for every day, um, to love God as the saints in heaven love Him, because to be a saint in heaven, we will have to love him. <laughs> All right, uh, very good. Father, maybe one more uh, viewer question. Some of our, actually, a couple of our viewers wanted to know if you could uh, possibly explain the significance of the last gospel, the gospel of St. John, that uh, it's read at the end of almost every Mass, unless there's a special last gospel. Why is that? 
particular gospel read? Well, it is uh, it is read actually because it was included in the uh, the Roman Rite of Mass. Uh, actually, as it called the Roman Rite, it's the Rite of Mass that was followed in Rome, right? Pope Pius the uh, the fifth, Saint Pius the fifth, uh, put that in the Missal of the Roman Rite and published it throughout the world, right? So uh, to this day, in every traditional Mass. Um, there is a last gospel, and uh, 98% of the time, uh, it is that. It is the beginning of the gospel according to St. John. Um, those first verses, about the first half of the first chapter of St. John. It is called the Proemium, um, uh, even called the Proto-Evangelium. The uh, fathers of the church, some of the fathers tell us that St. John was inspired by the Holy Ghost to, um, some say, supplement the very beginning of the book of the Bible, uh, the books of the Bible, the book of Genesis, where Moses talks about the creation of the world, God creating mankind. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, okay? That's uh, the opening of Genesis. And that St. John was moved to supplement that by saying that in the beginning was the word, in principio erat verbum. But the point of St. John's Gospel is to... um, to drive very, very, very firmly home to the minds of the Catholic people that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And those who deny it are heretics, like Serenthus and others who were living at St. John's time. St. John wrote the fourth gospel uh, when about the year 98 AD. It was uh, up in ancient at that time, and um, not far from death. He had been released from his exile in Patmos, where he wrote the book of the Apocalypse. And the very last book of the Bible written was St. John's Gospel. And he wrote it not to reveal things that Christians didn't already know, because they'd had the benefit of the preaching of the apostles all those years. So for the the Catholics living at the time, St. John's Gospel was not a new revelation. But it was a record a record of things that were not recorded in the other Gospels, not written down. And St. John wanted them recorded, the Holy Ghost wanted them recorded, so that we would have a permanent record of them in our own day. You don't have the benefit of the Apostles to preach to us. So St. John, uh, and the Holy Ghost through St. John, wanted the written record of these events that St. John wrote about, uh, together with the Synoptic Gospels of St. Matthew, St. Mark, St. Luke. And um, so the, the writing of St. John uh, was actually meant to be a clarion uh, call to acknowledge the divinity of Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God made man, the eternal Word of God. And that's where he starts his gospel, with that profession of faith. When he, when he starts out and says, uh, in the beginning was the Word, that already says so much, you know, we may say the beginning 
but we refer to the beginning of time. As Moses said, the beginning of, 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 uh, of Genesis, right? At the beginning, God created. That was the beginning that God created. That's when time came into existence, right? And, um, but St. John says, in the beginning was the Word. In other words, the Word of God already was when time started. He makes that point very strongly. The Word of God was, He existed already when time began. And so, um, as you continue reading, you begin to form this idea, not of eons and eons of time before there was time, you realize that there was existence before time began. And that existence is God and the Word, who is with God and is God. And St. John makes those two statements. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. To show the unity between, well, first of all, the, the point that he makes is the Word is distinct from God. And that the, we're dealing with two separate persons here, right? The Word was not simply another term referring to God but is actually, uh, is actually um, another person, right? Existing with God, but also he has the divine being. He is God. And this introduces the mystery of a trinity, right? The, uh, so right in the beginning of the, uh, of the Gospel of St. John, we have these very simple, straightforward statements that tell us what existed before time existed. And that is, there existed God, His Word, His perfect self-expression, through whom all else would come into being, through whom all else would be created. But the Word is not created, okay? And... Um, he was with God and God at the same time. Okay. So uh, we have these ideas presented at the beginning of St. John's Gospel. And St. John then develops these ideas as he's presenting to us um, the, the history of this divine being existing with God, in God, from all eternity, before the beginning of time, and it is through him that all creation came to be. And how the, uh, he actually came into this world. That is what expressed in St. In John's Gospel, that this, this word came into the world. And there was like light shining in the, in the world, dispelling the darkness, and the darkness could not grasp it or comprehend it. Right? It tried but it could not overcome it. And um, St. John mentions that this light enlightens every man who comes into the world. And uh, he's talking about grace here. He's talking about the light of God's grace coming into the world as this word of God has come into the world that was made through him. 
And finally, uh, St. John makes the point that um, for as many as actually received this light, this word of God, they had the power to become the children of God. And um, he speaks of those then who were born not of will of man, the will of the flesh, or of blood, but of God. And this is a very, very important theme, St. John. You find this theme throughout his gospel. You find this theme throughout his epistles. The idea that um, through the agency of this divine word that has come into the world, um, we have the power to become children of God, in a sense, to be born of God, as he says. Um, in St. John chapter 3, verse 15, again, we read about those who are born, well, the, the expression that is translated is born again, but the actual Greek term that St. John uses there is much more, much more important, and says much more. It actually says, born from above. And again, conveying the idea that we receive a birth from heaven. We receive a birth from God. As I mentioned before, the word is anoten. To be born anoten means to be born from above. St. John, he stresses that. He lays great emphasis on that idea of having this second birth and this birth of grace from God through Christ, the word of God in the, in coming into the world. And um, so finally, the last gospel ends with the statement, and the word was made flesh, and we all genuflect. And that genuflection, as we lower ourselves to our knees, indicates uh, kind of in a graphic way we represent the Son of the, the Word of God coming to the earth and being made flesh. And if the Word and dwelt amongst us, we rise again, indicating that uh, we, we honor and, uh, in a sense, reenact His coming from heaven down to us here, and then in standing the resurrection, His and ours, uh, that we anticipate already in St. John's Gospel. Now, uh, the great commentator of the 1600s, Cornelius Alapide, wrote rather extensively about this. And he quoted a lot of the fathers of the church. And I actually have that because our own uh, uh, Cornelius Alapide uh, um, expert, scholar, uh, translated it for us uh, for this. And uh, I'm very grateful to him for that. It would be certainly worthy of our attention to read that. I don't know if we can post that commentary on the website or not, but if we, I guess if we can obtain that file, we could actually post it okay. for people to read. And they would read what the fathers of the church had to say, and they said it much more eloquently than what I just, what I just said. Yeah. But uh, it, it, is, it is perhaps very ironic, okay, that uh, here in, in these times, we have the true Mass, the traditional Roman Rite of Mass. And at the very end of the, of the Masses, we are reading the beginning of St. John's Gospel, which was meant, as some of the Fathers say, to actually complete or supplement the very beginning of Revelation. 
in Moses' account of, of the creation and to tell us um, that um, creation itself was not the beginning in the sense that it was not the beginning of existence, that there were the being before time itself was created. Necessarily, a creator had to exist. So when we read the expression, I guess something that may put a cap on it is, when we read the expression in principio, in principio, in the beginning, you have the word principium, which can mean different things. It can mean the beginning of something, right? But it doesn't necessarily have to mean the beginning of something in time. With Moses, it did. In the beginning, God created, right? When he brought the world into existence and time, time came into existence. But it can also mean principle in terms of the cause of what made it happen, the foundation of it happening, <clears throat> the reason why it happened, right? The power by which it happened. <clears throat> and if we read St. John's Gospel, in that way, in principio, we realize that the divine creator, that there, there was the divine creator, this divine being, who brought the beginning into existence, who, in a say, started the beginning you know, of everything we know about this world and all of its time, all of its history. Uh, we, saw, we find that before time, there was already... God, and from all eternity, God's self-knowledge, the act of his divine intellect, his perfect self-expression, as it were, his divine word, in Greek, hologos. And uh, if, we, if we ponder the reality of that, we realize that this is the person of Jesus Christ who has come into the world as our Savior, and this is the person who we read about in the Gospels, and he speaks to us in, in the Gospels. Um, hopefully it would, it would just cause a certain sense of wonder in us and a greater appreciation for the, the magnificence, the splendor, the, the glory of this divine person who was willing to empty himself, as St. Paul says, ex inalibit sabatipsum, he emptied himself in order to come into the world as man and uh, to give his life for us. It might help us to appreciate more the love that motivated him. And that might, in turn, motivate us to love him more. We can always hope, right? <laughs> well, Father, perhaps uh, we should end for that. Very, uh, very beautiful thoughts there. Um, we did uh, want to mention before closing, though, um, we have a very important event coming up this uh, this Saturday. Father, if you could um, give us a bit of background on the, the mm. Pro-Life Rosary March, Rosary Procession that we have here downtown Cincinnati. Well, the Pro-Life Rosary Procession here in Cincinnati began I think, back in 1984, I believe, was the first one. So we're talking about uh, how many years? 40 years? Like that. Going on 40 years now. Mm. And um, we would pray the rosary publicly downtown, 15 decks of the rosary. And it would all be offered in reparation to God for the great uh, crime of abortion. We're asking God's mercy to deliver us from the scourge of abortion. 
And um, we are asking him, well, first of all, our purpose is to make reparation for him, uh, to God for that. But we ask that in turn that he would um, forgive us and uh, that he would deliver us from this evil. Uh, so we continue now to pray. One might say, well, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, so uh, is it really necessary to continue? I would say, actually, yes, as necessary or even more necessary. Why? Because in overturning Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court simply said, it's a state's rights matter. And now the individual states have to decide. And the individual states can actually decide, as Ohio did, to be much more um, rampant and, and, and even um, um, liberal in their abortion than, this, than the, the federal law was, right? Um, so by, re by turning this question back to the states, um, it, it gave, uh, un unfortunately, it, it gave power to certain people to introduce uh, uh, legislation that could even change, even change the, the state constitutions to enshrine a, a, um, a state right, constitutional right to abortion, and uh, with no restrictions whatsoever. Essentially, this is what the Ohioans have recently done. I think they were deceived into it. I think, um, I think if the majority of Ohioans knew what they were voting for, I think they would not have voted for this. They understood it, my personal opinion. Nonetheless, they did. And the same thing is being foisted upon other states around the, around the country be, uh, to get them also to uh, enshrine the right to abortion in their state constitutions and make it a right that is effectively subject to no control, basically. Okay. So um, as long as the doctor will sign off that it's for the life or the health of the mother, as long as a doctor, any doctor, will sign off that this is necessary for the health and the life of the mother in Ohio, nothing can prevent that, that abortion. There's no argument that'll, that'll stop it. Basically, what's on the books, right? So, um, so in any case, uh, we, we have this battle, which is not only ongoing, but it's intensifying now. As this is spreading... Um, throughout the, the country here. These states are uh, being uh, brought into this by the abortionists, not only in our country, but around the world. Millions of dollars were being poured into Ohio to um, campaign for that state constitutional uh, change. And um, by the abortionists, uh, billionaires. And uh, the pro-life cause was basically just overwhelmed, you know. So, this, this rosary procession has to go on. Uh, the battle now has just changed uh, the, the battlefield, so to speak. Uh, but the battle is, is fighting, is being fought every bit as, as intensely as it ever was. And uh, the children's lives are every bit as much in danger, and their mother's souls, too. So uh, this coming Saturday, as we have for the last 40 years or so, we're going to be gathering downtown. Uh, it's actually in the steps of City Hall in Cincinnati at uh, about 11 o'clock in the morning, I think, right? And we're going to have some talks, although they'll be pretty brief this year because it's going to be cold. 
And uh, then we're going to uh, bless the statue of Our Lady, and we're going to have the statue of Our Lady lead us. Um, as we follow it through the streets of Cincinnati, we'll be praying the 15 decades of the rosary. We end at Fountain Square. There are some awards that are given there. I expect the program will be rather brief again. Because uh, the Blessed Mother, as being a true mother, would probably say, uh, you need to get in out of the cold, okay? But uh, in any case, uh, we'll be there to do what penance we can offer and to offer what prayers we can, asking God's forgiveness and asking His mercy for our country. Very good. Please join us. Yes, absolutely. Please join us. Well, um, if any of our viewers are interested in uh, more information about that, they can certainly contact us. Also, um, to uh, the enthronement uh, brochures and information that you mentioned earlier in the program, Father, if any of our viewers want uh, any of that information, we can definitely get that to them as well. Mm -hmm. So they can uh, just email us um, there. But Father, thanks for being here tonight. Uh, thanks for, uh, we covered a lot of ground tonight. Hopefully you uh, enjoyed the first show on the new The Catholics Believe set. Well, Tom, I appreciate, you know, the, all the work that went into it, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of thought, preparation, and um, I hope the viewers like it too. <laughs> Um, Father Greenwell is still sick. Please pray for him. Um, and I'm not in tip-top shape either, as I'm sure it's pretty obvious. So I'd ask for those prayers, but mostly for Father Greenwell. He's got to overcome the pneumonia that's been plaguing him. And we've got to get him back uh, on his feet. Um, and there are many other good souls who need our prayers, who have asked us to pray. So I turn to our audience and ask them to and their kindness and generosity, pray for those in need. That's right. Father, thank you. God bless you. God bless you, yep. and all of our viewers. Too. Yes, thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What the Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you. <laughs>